Dracula. And I am spooky Padre Quivonic. Yeah, I kind of lost the handle there because like, <laughs> I didn't realize. Count Dracula, you've had that as your Halloween name. Yeah. Yeah. Mine is my name, Osberla. It's on Twitter. I'm Peter Kavanagh. Real Monsters. <laughs> which is a Nickelodeon pop culture reference that nobody has got yet. Erish, or who'd be getting it? Uh, me, mostly. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween to you too. Yeah, Have a super sound. Yeah, it's a really, really spooky time of year. It really is. And I, Donald Clark, who is a journalist who I have huge admiration for. Yep. He, Irish Times reviewer extraordinaire. You've very, very a Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. Hey, w- wonderfully droll man. We'd love to have him on sometime. But he was giving out recently about adults being mad into the Halloween and how it's this American commercialized thing of Halloween mm. and dressing up and people changing their Twitter usernames. But that, that's it's all Irish. It just went across to America with Irish emigration and just came back. Like, for example, right, the idea of, of trick-or-treating, right? Yeah. That actually has its origins in, in the southern part of the country, in Munster. And in Waterford, to this day, it's not called trick-or-treat. It's called the Omlish, from the Irish Iha Avlisha, or the Night of Mischief. Mm-hmm. And if you go out in Bunmahan, where my uh, mother's family is from, uh, which is a small uh, village on the Copper Coast, in the south of Waterford, mm-hmm. if you go out there on Halloween night, all the kids will be there. They will dress up as scary as they can, all the cool costumes. And instead of saying trick-or-treat, trick-or-treat, give me something nice to eat, or help the Halloween party as it was in Dublin, hmm. they will sing, and instead of being given nuts or sweets, they will be given money. So they will sing for money. And that is called the Omlish, which comes from Iha Avlisha, or the Night of Mischief. Now, that was what was exported, and that's what became trick-or-treat in America. So yeah, it's come back, and we have a more sanitised version of... Uh, Halloween with, with you know decorations outside our houses and you know cleaner costumes and mm-hmm. we're no longer sending kids out wearing bin bags yeah. but to say that it's all an American tradition and it doesn't it doesn't belong here is it's it's just not right it is deeply deeply Irish it's pre-Christian Irish mm-hmm. it's what um, it's what many people would refer to as an ancient Celtic tradition, which of course we know is just bull because there are no ancient Celtic traditions, but it is an ancient Gaelic tradition and, mm. it, and it's a pre-Christian tradition to get up to some mischief in and around Samhain because the two worlds are as close as they will ever be and as we all know, the two worlds are above ground where we live mm-hmm. and below ground where the good people live. The fairy folk. Where the fairy folk live. In the other world. The one of the, um, actually, just before we leave the American accusation thing, those the kind of commercialization points, the first thing is that American Halloween is actually still quite different from Irish Halloween in that they trade their candy after the children, after they collect it, are encouraged to barter with each other to to get the candy they want. And this is often seen as introducing children to a little bit of capitalism. Yeah, it's a little bit of capitalism because they get a handout. Yeah. And then they pretend that they worked hard to get it and they enter into the free market. Hey, so, yeah. I bartered I barter for those fair I bartered and for square. those. Yeah, but you traded six Ferrero Rocher that you got off your mad neighbour. So, yeah, I, I it's, yeah. I, I just, I hate when people hold up um, Halloween as like the American ideal or a great fucking model of capitalism or anything like that because it's, it's, it's inherently socialist. And I think also the huge enthusiasm recently in the past five, ten years for Halloween has to be seen as a pushback against creeping Christmas. You see Christmas decorations before (laughs) Halloween. Yeah, well, I mean, look, Samhain is the only thing 
keeping uh, Nullug from encroaching into Lunasa. You know, at this stage, we, we, we should be celebrating it as the great, you know, ancient Irish festival of, you know, the beginning of winter, the death of the old sun, as we prepare for the dark, dark winter and the coming of the new sun in Imbolc. But, you know, we don't. We just celebrate Halloween and that's fine because it's the only thing keeping Christmas from creeping into the summer. It is. And if it wasn't for Halloween, sure we'd all be wearing poppies and burning Guy Fawkes. I'm not going to comment on that. Okay. <laughs> um, no, so, but it's an interesting thing that Halloween has has been, has only, is a very recent arrival to the United Kingdom in that where Guy Fawkes Day was their fireworks and, and bonfire day. Yeah, but I mean, Guy Fawkes is less spooky. It's, you know, just murdering Catholics. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it's... It's just typically a, a good Guy Folk bonfire would have a. Um, I've always had an interest in this because my birthday is Guy Folk's Day. Is that they'd have. <laughs> is that a hint? No. <laughs> just saying. I'm going to be 40 in two weeks. <laughs> Anywho, the. Um, yes, they typically have a, a, a guy, a penny for the guy, and yeah. then they would also have a pope. But penny for the guy is like, is like help the Halloween party, isn't it? It's like help the bonfire party. Help the bonfire party, and then they'll and they'll burn an effigy of the Pope as well. Lovely, mm-hmm. just just like um, our brothers in the north uh, on the iron side of the the divide. Yeah, it's, uh, they love burning things in effigy. Well, Celtic captains, <laughs> Sinn Fein <laughs> MPs, you yeah. name it. We'll, it's, we'll burn it. <laughs> it's funny. I, I I don't. I think there's there was an opportunity to make the twelfth. A kind of a a, a Nordy Chanco de Mayo, or a, and it's that's slipped. It's passed. It's not coming back. Yeah, pretty sure that's not coming back. Which is a real shame because I just love the Lambeg drum. <laughs> I love it. It's so brilliant. It's so brilliant. Ronan O'Snudig from um, Keela hmm. uh, did did a lot of work on Lambeg drums, and, and I, I believe Brian O'Driscoll was on a TV documentary recently where he even played a Lambeg drum. It's such a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous instrument. But yeah, uh, unfortunately, uh, yeah, we won't be we won't be sending the Ellen Pipers along with the with the five bands to to join in on the twelfth anytime soon. Not this time. But what we're going to talk about today, and it is a obviously it's a special spooky bonus motherfucker episode. Yeah, we got a bit anti spooky there. We just sort of started slamming the Brits for a while. <laughs> Let's get back to the spookiness. Back to the spookiness. One of the spookiest things of all. I remember a couple of years ago, I saw this in my Facebook mentions that I was looking in, in a bookshop and there was an entire section and that there was a teen section, teen books, but then there was also a subsection of teen books, maybe more than half of them, supernatural romance. Wow. And basically there's a lot of people, a lot of y- young men, young boys and girls in their maybe teenage boys and girls reading about bone and vampires or not bone or holding hands and making <laughs> eye contact as the case may be. Yeah, yeah, the ones these are the, the vampires that sparkle in the um in the sunlight. Yes. Except for in the second movie when they're just lying in a field and there's the sunlight has absolutely no effect on them. Mm-hmm. It's just full of plot holes. It's, Listen. Stephanie Meyer is a terrible writer. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I'm sure she's there <laughs> and her pile piles of money in Seattle. It's, it's, <laughs> Funny, we, we, we'll, we'll discuss in some other time why Seattle has been the setting of Fifty Shades and of Twilight, but that's... Because because Fifty Shades was originally written as Twilight fan fiction. 
I'm not lying. E.L. James originally wrote it as Twilight fan fiction, which is why it's set. It was originally also going to be set in Forks, Washington, mm -hmm. but it was set in Seattle, the nearest big city, because there's not a lot of big business in Forks, Washington. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, originally it was it was fan fiction. It was about Bella um, being dominated by a sadomasochistic version of the Edward character. Uh, and uh, yeah, somebody just said, if you change the names, you've got a pretty decent erotic thriller there that you could market. And... And we have some terrible books and some terrible movies to thank for that. We do, and it's it was credited as one of the great successes of the uh, of the, just as the Walkman made Phil Collins very popular because people could listen to it without people knowing it. The Kindle made um, Fifty Shades very popular because people could read it without people seeing what they're reading. Yeah, unless you were stuck behind them on the bus and you knew what the dirty bastards were reading. <laughs> You're like, put that away. He put his love. Er, 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 uh, uh, yeah. And worse. And worse. Hey, I'm Alan McGuire. I'm Sarah Griffin. And I'm Alan Tonnen. And we are the tree hosts of Juvenalia, a podcast where we talk to interesting people about the bits of pop culture that were important to them when they were young. We've talked to Sarah Quinn about Madonna. We've talked to Auntie Donahue about Star Wars. And we've talked to Sinead Burke about Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And that's just three of the 60 plus episodes we have on the Heads Up Podcast Network. So if you remember things from your childhood and want to talk about them, we're here. Deep chats with sound people about wonderful things from their childhood. That's what we do here. So give us a listen. Bye, everybody. See you now. Bye. So vampires, huh? So vampires, yeah. So Fifty Shades was originally written as Twilight fan fiction. And Twilight is a vampire novel. And the original vampire novel, as everyone knows, was written by an Irishman, Dubliner, Abraham Bram Stoker. And Bram was born in 1847 in Ireland and raised in Dublin, in Merino, the Merino clan tariff area. Mm. And uh, yeah, Bram uh, wrote about a Transylvanian vampire called Dracula. Now, mm. a lot of people, we won't mention any names, would point out that Dracula sounds a lot like Druk Ulla, which would be the genitive case of bad blood. Mm. And that is unfortunately bullshit. It has nothing to do with with that. It comes from Dracul, a Romanian word. But was it based on Vlad the Impaler? Or was it based on an even older, even more scary Irish story? Ooh. So I'm going to share with you and with all of the listeners in Podcast Nation uh, the story of Avartach, the original Irish vampire. Ooh. Ooh. So I got a real pain in my neck listening to your stories. <laughs> <laughs> One vampire story. Ah, 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 ah. Uh, many, many centuries ago, uh, in an area quite close to Dungiven near Garva, these are in County Derry. Mm. There's a place up there right now at the moment, uh, townland, a rural townland uh, called Slachtaverty. Okay. Now, it's called Slachtaverty, Schlucht Avertig, but it really should be called Locht Avertig. Because what's up there is what's known locally as the Giant's Grave, but really it's Avertuk's grave. And okay. Avertuk was a king or a chieftain, a petty king it would have been known, who lived there in the area. And he was a cruel man, oh. he was a very cruel man. They reckon he was possibly living with dwarfism because Avertuk is one of the, the words, along with Auk, that would have been used for the term now we call Dinabyok. Sinead Burke, good friend of the pod, got the word changed. Uh, you know, it's a, a dwarf is what the uh, mm -hmm. the antiquated term would have been. But 
Avartuk, the petty king of this area, was one of these chieftains who ruled over his territory with an iron fist. He was jealous, he was a suspicious man, he didn't trust anyone, not even his wife. Uh, and one night, he climbed out one of the windows of their rah, or dune, one of their fort. He went out one of the windows or doors and crept along a ledge to get to his wife's chamber. And somehow along the way he slipped, or perhaps because he was a short person with a club foot, he was off balance, but he slipped mm-hmm. and he died. So his people, they didn't really like him, but he was the king. What can you do? They buried him. They buried him standing up as was the way a king should be buried at the time in the in the pre-Christian custom. Uh, however, the next morning, who shows up? Only Avertuch. And he demands that each of his followers open a vein in their wrist and fill a bowl so that he can drink their blood to sustain his body, that he could live. So Avertuch had returned as one of the Nyav Varav, or the undead. Ooh. So they said, right, well, we've got to get rid of him. Yeah. <laughs> we got to try and kill him again. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, <laughs> it's a fairly weird request. Yeah, yeah. So they, they put the word out. They went to whatever the um, equivalent of Craigslist or Gumtree was in the 5th century AD in what is now County Derry. And they got a, a chieftain of a nearby realm, a great warrior called Cahan, um, to say that he'd do it. Mm. in return for a just reward. And so Cahan challenged Avertuk to single combat and he slew him. Oh. And they buried Avertuk. And the very next day, Avertuk returned, um. climbed out of the ground and demanded the heads of those that had arranged for Cahan to come and kill him. And he drank their blood and he got all his other followers to open a vein in the wrist and he drank their blood. And this continued for a while. And the people were in great terror because... First of all, he was the king anyway, mm-hmm. so they weren't in the habit of refusing him. And then, obviously, he came back as a zombie king, an undead king, uh, you know, the, the, the Nyav Varav, which was even scarier than a king. Yeah. So the people did the only thing they could do. They asked Khan to come back and slay him again. But Khan was no dope. He realized that things didn't work the first time around, mm-hmm. so he sought counsel. Now, depending on what version of the story you're reading, it was either a, a, a druid or a wise man, or a saint that he sought oh. out. So the version that I learned growing up was that he spoke to Saint Owen, because Owen was one of the saints up in that area. Uh, Osbert, I suppose it would be Saint Eugene, but I think I much prefer the name Owen to Eugene. Yeah, Sorry to all the Eugenes out there. Um, but he, he had already founded a place of Christian worship near the area. The site there is still called Churchtown, and he built a few churches around the place in, in Gortna Moyna and, and McGilligan, Killowen, near Coleraine, all these oh, places yeah. in County Derry. St. Owen had, uh, had, had, uh, had built these, these churches. So it was to this saint that Cahan went, and the old man, the saint, listened to him, and Cahan finished the story, and... The saint said to him, Avertuk isn't alive. Through his pact with the devil, he's become one of the Nyav Varav, the undead. He's become a drinker of human blood. He can't actually be killed, but he can be restrained. So he gave the astonished Kahan instructions on how to restrain or suspend the vampire. Oh. He said, Avertuk must be slain with a sword made from yew wood, and he must be buried upside down not standing up in the earth. And then you must sprinkle thorns and ash twigs around him and a heavy stone must be placed directly on top of him. And should the stone be lifted, he will be free to walk the earth once more. So Cahan went back to the area now known as Slochtaverty near Glenullen. 
outside Dungiven and he he did exactly what the holy man had said. He trapped Overtook and slew him with a wooden sword made of you and he buried him upside down, placed thorns all around the graveside. And then he built a huge mm-hmm. tomb known as a dolmen. We yeah. have a huge slab, then you have two men here are upright stones and another slab across the top. Yeah. Now the dolmen has disappeared and the thorns and the twigs have obviously disappeared after many hundreds of years. But the stone remains at Slachtaverty. Oh. Now, the PSNI, many years ago, were investigating the sudden death of a man around about that land because the area has developed a sort of a reputation. Things sort of go wrong. So they made attempts to clear the land to see if they could find any clues. But if you're to believe the local tradition, the workman who tried to fell a tree that was growing from underneath the stone up and around, they found that their brand new chainsaw blades were breaking or they were getting a lot of short circuits and batteries were running out. And when they tried to lift the great stone, a steel chain suddenly snapped, cutting one of the hands of one of the labourers clean off and significantly allowing his blood to soak into the ground. And although legends still talk about the man who was buried three times and the great king's ransom of treasure that was buried with him, there's very few people from up around Slachtaverty that will go up and have a look, especially after dark. Now, what does this have to do with Bram Stoker? Well, you've got to remember that when Bram Stoker was born, 1847, the famine was at its height. And the horrors of the famine, they added considerably to the kind of the suspicion that the, the bailages that's around blood in Ireland. Uh, we've always had suspicions around um, animal blood in particular. Uh, if you read the excellent uh, musician and storyteller Billy McGlynn's book, he talks about use of animal sacrifice in Irish Christianity right up until the 20th century, particularly mm. in places like West Clare. Um, so the blood of pigs and cows was being used to pray for a good harvest, even to Christian saints. And during the famine, the blood of pigs and cows supplemented what was a meagre diet at the time, made into what was called relish cakes, where they took Indian meal that they would get off the British government or the British churches. Yeah, They would add pig's blood or cow's blood and they would put in the tops of root vegetables and they would mix it all together and bake it over the fire. And that was a a relish cake. So when you consider that we'd gone as a culture from, you know, we're not like the Maasai warriors. Drinking blood was not a thing. And then in the famine, we turned to what was essentially desperate times, uh, drinking the blood of animals and baking it into our foods. That's when Joyce, that's when, not Joyce, (laughs) that's when Stoker was born, right? But... Stoker wrote this brilliant book, Dracula, this really, really good novel. It's got everything. It's a rip-roaring 19th century adventure. And a lot of people reckon it's based around Vlad the Impaler, Vlad Tepes, the second uh, King Vlad of Transylvania, an area of Romania under the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So the thing we know from Stoker's notes, because he died in penury in in London and all his estate was sold off, uh, we know that he didn't own any books about Transylvania. At all. What he did have in his collection was a book from 1880 called A History of Ireland, written by Patrick Weston Joyce. And Joyce had recounted several Irish legends, including the original vampire story, the story of Avertuch. 
So that's fascinating. Because one of the things that Bram Stoker has done, maybe one of the reasons there hasn't been that as much research is he left really, really good notes. Yeah. Unlike, say, some other mysterious and kind of Van Cagey and taciturn writers who... Like Derek O'Shea. Who allow people to interpret what did this writer actually mean. But, oh, like Stephanie Meyer. That's right, like Stephanie Meyer. But <laughs> Dracula has the distinction of being of never being out of print. and oh, It's amazing. It's it, still such a good book, though. It's just got everything. And it has never been filmed the way it's been written. Like, there have been films obviously made of it, but they have always taken... S- a lot of liberties in some ways the book when you read it you kind of think how would you make a film out of this yeah there's a lot you couldn't really film because a lot of it is, in, is is in diary form and a lot of it, it like that's not to say that it's boring mm. but it is it is deliberately mundane and scene setting and if you take the Bram Stoker's Dracula starring Keanu Reeves Winona Ryder Gary Oldman um, it, I mean it's possibly the truest to the yeah. book that's been made to date but they still had to edit quite a bit yes so I, I, yeah, I don't know if it could ever be filmed the way it is, but he's really started something because he was the first one to write about vampires in popular fiction. And I mean, OK, whether that's a good thing or not, because, you know, on the one hand, he has given us just like stuff like Blade, which is just absolutely awesome. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, he has given us the Twilight Saga, which a lot of people have enjoyed. Yeah, but they shouldn't have. <laughs> OK, and... <laughs> I think that Power, thank you so much for sharing the story with us for our, our bonus Halloween episode. Mm-hmm. And you said bone, bone, like, like in skeletons. Ooh. Ooh. And before we wrap up, I just want to say you've never heard the Monster Mash. You've only ever heard about the Monster Mash. You've only heard a song about the Monster Mash. It's my Halloween special thought for the day. The song, the Monster Mash, is like they were all doing a Monster Mash. It's a, non, it's a separate song. Oh, so it's like Tenacious D's song, Tribute. This exactly. is not the greatest song in the world. This is just a tribute. That's exactly right. That is the least spooky Halloween thought ever. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> on that unspooky note, it's a slon from me. It's a spooky slon from me. Ooh. Catch you next time. Oh. Ooh. oh. Thank you to Brian for producing <laughs> Motherfuck Lords, a podcast on the Headstuff Podcast Network. Slot. Hey folks, it's Panner from today's extra special, extra spooky Halloween episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, remember... Halloween can be a scary time for pets, so make sure to take them inside. There's going to be a lot of bangers and bonfires and fireworks, so bring them in tonight, snuggle up, watch a nice horror movie, or listen to this podcast again, because it's really, really good. Motherfuckler normally comes out every Friday. This is an extra special bonus episode, but it's out on the Headstuff Podcast Network, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a million to Brian on the sound and to the wonderful Kirsten Shield for her artwork. We will see you. Regular service is resumed this Friday. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Do you want to whisper? Yeah, I guess so. Do you want to whisper? Shut up!